you can be seated and please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're continuing our series there. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Grateful to be with you as always. Happy Father's Day. Man, it's a joy and a burden <laughs> to share the community to be a dad. And I'm grateful to be numbered with uh, each of you uh, in that fatherhood journey, especially as we just learn what it means that the Father loves us, the Heavenly Father loves us. And I think wherever you are in your fatherhood journey, we're grateful to be in it with you, grateful uh, to be in community with you. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 today, um, and talking about suffering. Now, suffering is something that I think is a really common critique of our faith, isn't it? And I think one of the more common criticisms of the Christian faith is if God is really loving and God is really powerful, how could he allow so many people to hurt? And how, how much suffering do we see in the world? And isn't it true, what we've lived this past year has been a ton of suffering, has been a ton of pain and problems and, and disorder and, and frustration and loss. And in the middle of that, it would be natural to say, where is God? What is he up to? Why would he allow these sorts of things. Now, while I believe that the scriptures give us great clarity about that answer, about that problem, if you will, um, what we want to look at today is how does God actually respond? Because I do think we take so much time wondering how could God exist with all of this suffering, we fail to consider what does the Bible teach us about how God responds to suffering, how he responds and what he has done. And that's really what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through five, is he answers the question, how does God respond to suffering, particularly in your life and in my life? So not just theologically or in this very ethereal space of doctrine, but actually what is he doing in your life in the middle of suffering? And isn't it really good to know God actually does do something in the middle of our suffering? He does not just leave us to our devices. Let's keep in mind this particular question. Why would Paul be answering this question? It's so obvious that it's easy to, to forget or to neglect. Paul is helping his readers understand suffering because they are suffering, because they are going through it, because they are experiencing pain. Remember, this is a relatively new church community. House churches scattered throughout first century Rome, all trying to learn to get along, coming from different backgrounds, different cultural upbringings, different religious upbringings, and now they gotta gather as the church. And throughout our time in Romans, we are supposed to take great solace in that. Because when we look around the room, when we gather as the church, when we know our family and friends who are gathered even at home on, online with us today, when we look at everybody who is a part of the church in the square family, we should be able to say, there is no way we should all know each other or be family except for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's too many differences. There's too many other things about us that should say we should not be together. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he has made us one, is that he has made us a family. And therefore, that means it's going to be hard, right? I don't know any families that are like, you know what? Being a family is really easy. Everyone always gets along, especially in the pandemic. There were no debates over masks or vaccines or any sort of political undertones to our conversations. It was completely wonderful. We loved this time together as a family, right? Are we going to be real this morning yet? Or are we just, okay, just testing the waters a little bit. I think you know what I'm getting at. Paul is writing to an audience that can relate to us that can relate to the tensions and problems and pains even within church family that we are going through. But remember, in the middle of that, Paul has just articulated what justification is, what it means to be made righteous, that you have been saved by grace 
through faith, not of your own accord, not of your own works, because no one can boast. This is all a work of God's grace. But that's a livable theology is what Paul is saying. In other words, this isn't just something that we believe. This is a lens through which we see the entire world. This is a lens through which we see our existence. And so because we have been saved by grace through faith, Paul says you can have peace with God. Do you know what you need more than anything else in life is peace with God? And Paul says you can have that by grace through faith. But then he starts talking about hope. And last week, or rather, um, yeah, this hope that we can have, a rejoicing that we can have in hope. We looked at that last week. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't just rejoice with hope. Paul's going to tell us today we can rejoice in suffering. In other words, we don't just have hope because of tomorrow. We have hope that even in the worst present, God is with us. In the worst reality that you and I could face, God is a God who, who is with us. We see this in the incarnation. We see this throughout the story of Israel. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5, 1 through 4, or 5, 5, that will sort of conclude that portion today, is that those who have peace with God can rejoice in hope and rejoice in suffering. Those who have peace with God can rejoice in hope and rejoice in suffering. Or, or, and, and why? Why can we have that kind of assurance? Or perhaps the better question is how? How can we boast? Remember, that's that word rejoice. How can we boast in suffering? Well, this, this is the crux of, of the word that I believe God has for us today. It's because God responds to our suffering. We, we can have hope. We can rejoice. We can even boast in our suffering because God responds to our suffering. Or perhaps, to put it in, in more doctrinal language, is that God redeems our suffering. God redeems our suffering. He doesn't just respond to it in some sort of bland sense or relational sense. He actually does something to redeem, to bring about the good. We see this throughout the story of God's people. And, and therefore, what is true of God's people in the past is true of God's people in the present, is true of God's people in the future, because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here is the very words of God, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, and then we'll pray and get to work. Romans 5, 3 through 5. More than that, Paul says... We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful today. That in the middle of our sorrow, suffering, brokenness, and need, you are a God who speaks. You are a God who is with. You are a God who redeems and responds to our suffering. And so, Father, in the various ways that we can relate personally or as a community or as an entire global community to the nature of suffering today, we pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would help me to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for your glory, Father, for our good we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, right away, I think when we read this passage, we see that Paul has this sort of flow of thought. He's essentially saying one thing leads to another, and that thing leads to another. There's a clear prog progression or flow of what he is trying to communicate. Look again. He says, suffering, this is how God redeems our suffering. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Now, before we get too quickly, in our context, we have to be so careful about what we call suffering. Are you with me yet? We have to be so careful about what we say suffering is 
or isn't. Not so that we can label one thing, but so that we can face these things with humility and joy. Suffering. In the Greek literature, this word that Paul uses for suffering really means to press or to squash or to rub. In sort of this common parlance, it does not necessarily mean what maybe is conjured up in our minds, but it helps us to understand what Paul might be getting at. And it's not the first time that Paul uses this word. Romans chapter 2, verse 29, he says, there will be tribulation, that's that word, squash, press, rub, and distress for every human being who does evil. So suffering then is an affliction. And in a more eternal or what we call eschatological sense, it's tribulation. In other words, it is something that goes well beyond, and here's what we need to hear, well beyond common inconvenience and discomfort. Well beyond inconvenience and discomfort. Suffering is a situation or season that presses against us, that squashes things that we thought were true. It squeezes stuff out of us that we didn't think was in there. It rubs us like sandpaper, and we don't want to go through it. In other words, these are real hardships. Paul is thinking about all types of heavy burdens, of laments, of problems, of afflictions, which squash and hurt and harm. They bear this capacity to inflict real damage and pain and cost. There's a great deal of suffering in our world, isn't there? Richard Dawkins once said that even if you tried to contemplate the amount of suffering that there was in just a minute, you would be unable to do it. An atheist has this clear view of it. Author James Baldwin wrote that there are so many ways of being uh, despicable, it makes one's head spin. Yet, isn't it true, most of the time, if we're just going to keep it real, we don't think about all of the suffering in the world. We think about suffering when it deals with me, when it hits me. One, one commentator said this is the new problem of evil. The old problem of evil is how could a good and loving God exist and there be suffering in the world. The new problem of evil is that you and I don't care about evil until it affects me. Guilty. And I think one of the ways that we can test this, when you read the global news, do you weep or do you move on? Are you fearful about the capacity of human harm and, and evil? Or are you only worried about it when your neighbor is singing karaoke late at night and has way too much noise for you to feel comfortable and you're like, this is real suffering. Jesus, enter into this space, take the wheel, whatever adage you want to say, all of a sudden, something that is a minor inconvenience becomes more important to you and me than global suffering, death, disease, chaos, and affliction. And I'm there with you. See, this, this is something we've really got to face. We are actually more concerned with the sound level of our neighbor than we are about those who are dying all over the world. And so we have to ask the question, why? What is that? What's going on in my heart? We've seen that this past year, haven't we? Making decisions about a global pandemic based on my comfort, what I think, what I want, not what's going on with my neighbor, not what's going on with somebody around the world. If we're really honest, I think these are the things that really cause us to complain, to get frustrated, which are really just no more than minor inconveniences and discomforts. Nevertheless, God has a word for us today. Isn't it really good that God speaks to us even though we don't deserve it? I don't deserve to hear a word from God because of all of the grumbling and complaining and frustration that I, you know, real talk. I think that God often just puts up with me, that he's like somehow through the Holy Spirit, he snuck onto the team, right? And so I guess we've got to let him into the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that God actually loves me and is for me because of the work of Christ, that he desires to speak to me even when I'm complaining and grumbling and frustrated by minor inconveniences. This is how good your God is. 
This is how good my God is. This is how good our God is. One of my favorite authors, Marva Dawn, suffered for most of her life. She was blind in one eye. She had a terrible leg infection and, and pain that relegated her to a wheelchair most of her life. She uh, was diagnosed with breast, breast cancer. She had a kidney transplant. And, and, and within the evangelical world, she suffer, suffered from the case of singleness well into her 60s. And, and therefore, there was this, this view of her that she would say that people looked at me and they pitied me. And that they had this view of me. And she writes in her book, Being Well When We're Ill, Dawn explores her own response to her pain and suffering. And I think she's got some wisdom for us today. She says in this book that she learned instead of asking why when suffering came her way was to ask, God, what are you up to in the midst of this? <sighs> Not why me, but God, what are you up to in the midst of this? She also asked, where do I catch a glimpse of the Trinity or God's grace in this? This is a woman who is speaking with incredible clarity and yet in incredible courage and yet in incredible wisdom because she, what, what she is actually walking through. This is not just a professorial moment for her, even though she was a scholar and a teacher, but it, it's her story. This is her life. Where is God in the middle of this and what is he up to in the middle of this church? Can you even imagine if we became a church family in a community that instead of when pain comes our way, instead of saying, why me? You know, I do good things. I'm a, I'm a good dad. I'm a good husband. I do my best at work. Like, instead of giving God reasons why I'm not a great candidate for suffering, what if we started asking, like our sister Marva Dawn, God, what are you up to in this? God, what would you have me see in this? How might I catch a glimpse of your grace? And even as I look around the room, I know many of you are suffering. I know many of you are going through affliction and pain, and yet this is a word for all of us today. God, what are you up to in the middle of our suffering? Look again at Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice, we boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. What is God doing? Where is his grace? Well, it's right here. God redeems suffering. This is what God is up to in the middle of your suffering and my suffering and the suffering of this world. He is redeeming it. That's what we're boasting and rejoicing about. Now notice, it doesn't say rejoice for suffering. It's not some sort of masochistic call for, for God's people to somehow be celebrated that life is hard or to celebrate or rejoice in that. What does it say? What does the text say, church? It says we rejoice in our suffering. Or as one commentator put it, all of the blessings that Paul has just written about, about justification, that the benefits of justification are not diminished by suffering, they are enlarged by it. This peace with God that you and I have is not eradicated through suffering, is what he is saying, but ultimately it is magnified. Therefore, we have much to be grateful for. We keep rejoicing in suffering. Why? Because we have access through hope to the grace of God, and it has not been threatened, it has not been diminished, no matter how hard it gets. But it's more than that. Paul is not just saying that you should stay positive, right? Thanks be to God, we have more than just staying positive in the middle of our suffering and thinking happy thoughts as some sort of like, I don't know, Disney theology that makes me feel good, but it actually doesn't change my circumstance. He's not saying that we ought to keep the faith despite our sufferings. This is not a boisterous and blind sort of Christian courage. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps for the glory of God. That's not what this is. What he is saying is that we boast, we rejoice 
because of our sufferings. It's the picture we get in Acts chapter 5, where the apostles are beaten to the point of almost dying. They are imprisoned. Then they are, leave the presence of this council, and, and uh, Acts 4, rather, tells us in verse 4, they are rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I don't know about you, but I never think, wow, God, you found me worthy of suffering for your name? And this is what the apostles said that they were doing. See, they, they were boasting, and their boasting was because of their suffering, because they knew that their God redeemed suffering. He makes us more like him. How does he do that? Well, I think Paul lays out three particular ways that he makes us, that God makes us more like himself through suffering. The first thing that Paul says is that God gives us clarity through suffering. He gives us clarity. The word endurance really means perseverance or single-mindedness. You see, when we suffer, we start seeing things as they really are. And, and as the world really is, we start seeing what's truly important. Whether you have been afflicted by racism, whether you have suffered loss in your, your family, what, what suffering and affliction and this pressure reveals is the foolishness of our idols. The foolishness of our sin. The, the, the time that we have wasted. See, when someone in your family has cancer or you lose a loved one or when someone is unjustly attacking you or your community, we realize how wasteful we have been with our time and how powerless we even are against death. See, God redeems our suffering by refocusing us on his character and his kingdom. God makes us more mature through suffering, secondly. The idea of character is about being tested. This, this idea in uh, the Greek is this idea that only a veteran of something would understand, someone who's been through it. So a veteran understands something through wisdom and experience that a rookie would never understand. Someone who's doing something for the first time, no matter how many books you read, millennials, are you with me yet? No matter how many blogs you read or how many viral TikTok, I don't even know what we do now, but whatever we watch, however we take in information, nothing replaces this kind of endurance and this kind of understanding and this kind of character that Paul is talking about. It is only forged through fire and trusting the Lord. This is Marva Dawn. This is what our sister, late into her years, understood about her God because she walked it. She understood it. See, we can have knowledge about a lot of things, but much of the wisdom of God's good world only comes through experiencing the fire and finding him faithful on the other side. And him knowing that he has seen us through it and having a story to tell. See, God redeems suffering by growing us up in the things of God, even through affliction. Thirdly, God gives us hope through suffering. Do you see that? See, when we have refocused, been refocused, and we grow up a bit, our eyes then look to the future glory and hope that is to be revealed, that God has promised. Suffering takes us to the end of ourselves and our ability and rightly drives us to the Lord where we find great assurance and great confidence. In other words, like the disciples said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Suffering teaches us that. See, sometimes without suffering and just in the comfort of our own world, we're like, I got this. I'm doing pretty good. It's kind of comfortable life that I'm living. All of a sudden, there's a little test or a little affliction or a little pain, and you go, never mind, never mind. I need you, oh, how I need you, right? I mean, we just break out in song. Is, is that just me? Like, literally, like, I, I am so desperate for you. I need, I need your hope. I don't need my 
ability. See, when we ask, what is God doing? We realize that he is redeeming us right in the middle of our suffering. He's not promising to make us something on the other side. He meets us in the middle of it, and he matures us. He gives us endurance. He gives us character, and he gives us hope. Gives us clarity. See, all these things which are reflective, aren't they, of his character, of his nature. This is how the image of God is sharpened and shaped within us even through suffering. We become more like him. God redeems our suffering. God responds to our suffering. This is why you and I can rejoice in, or rather, as Paul says, because of our suffering. Or in the words of the apostles, in suffering we are counted worthy of becoming more like Christ. But let's be honest. Let's continue to be honest here. Lord, help us. Most of the time, we don't respond like that. I don't respond like that. I don't say, God, what are you up to? Oh, good, you're giving me clarity, you're making mature, you're building character in me. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes in the middle of my suffering, I'm like, could you build this, build character in me any other way? Any other way? Like the Holy Spirit, right? Just download that information. I don't want to go through pain to learn anything. I don't want to be shaped through suffering. And, and, and so what we do at all costs is we avoid suffering and build our lives on convenience and comfort to try to protect ourselves from suffering, right? Are you with me yet? Am I the only one in this? I want to build my life on comfort and convenience so I don't have to endure suffering. But, but here's the truth. It's only a matter of time. This world is so broken, you cannot protect yourself from suffering. You can't do it. It's a futile pursuit. Suffering will always find a way in because our world, because of sin and darkness, is just that broken. In fact, some of us believed the lie at our conversion into Christianity that we came to Jesus even because he was going to make us more comfortable, that he was going to provide the convenience of a particular kind of way of life that was going to take away suffering. But the last time I checked, when you read the Bible, what does Jesus say? In this world, you will have tribulation. Who is he speaking to? People who don't trust him and don't follow him? No, he's talking to his disciples. In fact, church, hear, hear this. This is what the Lord impressed upon me this week. Christians should not just to suffer, expect to suffer as much as everybody else. Following Jesus, we should expect to suffer more than everybody else. Because Jesus says that you and I are supposed to follow him on what kind of road? Is it a broad road that leads to destruction? No, it's a narrow road that leads to eternal life. We should expect more suffering. And I confess to you, I am just as susceptible as anybody else to build my life on comfort because I don't want to suffer. I want Jesus to save me for heaven, but I don't want him to be with me in suffering right now. I want to avoid it. Yet then someone gets sick. A terrible accident happens. A coworker blasts you because they find out that you go to church on the weekend or that you love Jesus. Someone says something to you that deeply wounds you and hurts you because of your cultural heritage, the color of your skin whatever it might be, and all of a sudden you find your place, yourself in this place of suffering, of lament, of being pressed, of being rubbed, of being pressured. We go through a global pandemic. Those in power systematically use their power for selfish gain and violence, and we watch this happen not only to ourselves, our friends, but the entire world. And in those moments, in our flesh, I believe we have been discipled by the wider culture to respond not by asking God, where are you in this, but to complain, to complain. 
See, we don't trust that God redeems suffering, so we don't rejoice in our suffering. We just complain. Now, this is not merely an observation of our church family or of my own heart. This is the story of Israel. Can I just give you a wild story from Numbers chapter 11? This is crazy. So God's people have been liberated. Hear this. They've been taken out of suffering. God has redeemed them. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And maybe just read into that inconveniences and discomforts. Am I, am I preaching to you yet? Right? And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some, some of the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Terabah because of the fire that the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble, they weren't done yet, that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Does that sound like your heart? Because it sure sounds like mine. I know you saved me. I know you freed me. I know that you brought me out of darkness into light. But this dude is driving crazy in front of me, and I'm going to lose my mind. Will you spite him, O oh God of heaven? Right? My favorite coffee shop ran out of the kind of alternative milk that I enjoy. God, why are you doing this to me? If we are not careful, the Christians that are meant to storm the gates of hell are those complaining just like the rest of the world. Moses, we go, okay, but Moses got it on lock, right? Didn't he correct them? No, 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 no. They tell Moses, and then Moses takes the complaining to God. Here's what Moses said. Moses said to the Lord, what have you dealt, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Suffice to say, Moses is not putting on a leadership conference anytime soon because he simply goes to God and just says, they're all complaining and I'm frustrated too. Did I give birth to all these people? Why are they my responsibility? They're crazy, right? So Moses takes the whining of the people and he goes and whines and complains to God. And please remember, Israel had been suffering for a very long time in Egypt. God delivers them out of that in a miraculous work of his grace. They are no longer slaves. They are no longer slaves to fear or to Egypt. Their suffering is actually over. Their misfortune is summarized by a discomfort with the menu that God is providing for them. They didn't have any meat. Nevertheless, they complain, and so do we. So how does God respond? Now, this is an important moment, so God, give us grace. We would expect that God would just go, that sounds really hard. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Here you go. You want it rare, medium rare, like whatever you need. I got 
you. At least that's often how I believe that God responds to my complaining or my angst or whatever it might be. What God does is he says, Moses, you don't need food. You need help. Gather the 70 elders. I want them all to come and shoulder this burden. This is too much for you. He gives him not what he is asking for. He gives him what he needs. And then he says, but I, I am going to provide meat for the people of God. And he gives this deluge of quail. I mean, he just dumped. They can't count it. And God says, I'm not just going to give you quail or meat for a day. I'm going to give it to you for a month. And here's what God says. Until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you or loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you have wept before him. He's like, you think that's the issue? I'll give you everything you ask for. This is Romans chapter one. God gave them over to the desires of their heart. Here, if that's what you want, if that's what you worship, if that's what you think you need, here you go. But it is not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for you. See, God has redeemed his people. He has given them clarity, given them maturity, given them hope, and they still complain. Can I just say, the people of God give me great hope because I identify so much with that. I identify so much with complaining and frustration in this, and God responds to them, really giving them a consequence, giving them exactly what they want. You think what you need is meat? Eat until you are disgusted by meat. They didn't like the menu. So here's the question for us today, church. Are you hearing God speak to you this morning? How are you suffering? What is actually just an inconvenience in your life? What is actually just a discomfort? What are you complaining about and who are you blaming? How are you responding? See, if rejoicing comes from hope and faith, then complaining comes from fear and distrust. This is what the Lord actually identifies. Meat is not your problem. Trust is. Whatever you and I complain about, the issue is never the issue. What God is saying, Moses, you don't need to know where more food is. You need more help, and I'll give it to you. Notice, God gives them what they need, and then he proves a point through consequence. This is not what you need. What you need is to trust me. See, in our complaining, in our suffering, there is hope. Church in the square, there is always hope. That's what Paul is reminding us here in his readers in Romans. What he's reminding us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that God redeems our suffering. And yes, God even redeems our complaining. Can I get an amen? That he even meets us in that. When we have not even been accurate in our lament. When we're complaining about stuff we shouldn't be complaining about. How do we know this? Well, because we have a hope that, hear this, does not put you to shame. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's why you can rejoice, church. God loves you. Here's why you can boast, church, because God loves you. Here's why you have hope in the middle of suffering, because God loves you. Here's what you can and how you can respond and what you know he is up to in the middle of your suffering and pain. He loves you. Paul ends with love, and love, one writer put it, becomes the moral principle by which we live. But not a modern love of permissiveness, of saying you can do whatever you want, whatever, it's no big deal. Rather, it's an eternal love built on truth and covenant. You see, in Christ, we have been given God's spirit, and Jesus calls him our helper, right? God has put his spirit inside of you that you might have a very present help in time of need. And we see this even modeled in our Lord, don't we? 
See, what else does God do in the middle of our suffering? He reminds us that he knows what you're going through. Because his son suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross. How does Jesus face his own suffering? With rejoicing, with boasting. See, the most profound response that God has towards our suffering is that he sent his son to suffer with us and for us in our place. And Jesus rejoices in suffering. Here, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hear this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, would you meet my sisters and brothers in the middle of their suffering? Even now, church, take a minute reflecting back on this year, the past month, or even what you dread about tomorrow. Where are you being pressed? Where are you being pressured? Where are you feeling pain? What fears and distrust are showing up in your heart? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. He promised it. But the latter portion of what he says is, fear not, for I have overcome the world. In your suffering, look to Christ. In your suffering, know that God is bringing you clarity. He's making you mature. He is giving you hope. In our suffering, we know that God loves us and is with us so we can rejoice. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to be a people who boast in our suffering because you, our God, are redeeming and bringing about the good for all those who are called according to your purposes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.